Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. And I'm Derek Weber, the Director of Preaching Ministry. And in this podcast, we often discuss how to plan worship using the Common Lectionary while creating worship series that are engaging, relevant, and adaptable for your church setting. But during this time of transition from virtual to in-person and even hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. My guest today is one of our favorite people, the Reverend John Thornburg. Director of Learning at the Texas Methodist Foundation. John brings 42 years of ministry experience in diverse settings, both in the United States and in West Africa. He calls himself a professional encourager and loves to work with congregations in reassessing their core purpose. He helps churches take the global aspirational mission statement of the United Methodist Church, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world and asks, what is the particular difference God is calling us to make in our community in this season of the congregation's life? So, welcome back, John. It's always good to have you with us. Thank you, Derek. It's a pleasure to be back. Now, we called you back because of what might have been an offhand comment in our last podcast that we were intrigued by, but we'll get to that in a moment. I want to start with you, first of all. I understand that you're recently back from traveling. So how was that? How did that feel? And, and how are you doing in general? Thanks so much for asking. Yes, we, my wife and I had some time in northern New Mexico. And we had just the beautiful encounter with um, nature and, and in particular <laughs> with the beauty of the mule deer. Um, of which we saw many, and and with the brilliant color of the Stellar's Jay. So um, I got my cup filled by God's beautiful uh, handiwork in nature. And we did a lot of walking, and it did us a lot of good. But it was away from people. <laughs> it was not encountering, you know, the, the crowds and all of that sort of thing, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Did, did you run into any difficulties in actually getting there and the travel and all that, or did it all go pretty smoothly? Well, we were blessed. Uh, we, yeah. we were careful, um, but uh, things went really well. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. As one who's been uh, in my house, it seems like for half of my life now, <laughs> sounds good to be able to be out and travel around a bit. Yes. But let's get to the point, the spur for this particular conversation is a comment you made during our last podcast about decentering power in the chancel. So as the church returns to a more traditional expression of in-person worship or a hybrid model, many congregations are, and leaders are exploring how they can avoid going back to previous patterns of business as usual. So this seems to me to be a perfect time to rethink how we do church. So walk us through that. Tell us what you mean when you speak of decentering power. Sure. Um, well, I see it in a twofold sense. One is believing that 
that Paul was right when he said that each of us receives a gift from the Spirit um, and that it's made immeasurably deeper um, when we get to use it. Um, this is the part of decentering in which we simply acknowledge that in the Christian community, the acquisition and use of power is not a zero-sum game. Uh, if I share power with you, I don't lose something, I gain something. But then there is the other side of realizing that in any setting, including a local congregation, um, voices can dominate uh, such that important perspectives or wisdom can be drowned out. But if the one voice that has been dominant is vulnerable enough to see what that dominance has produced, uh, and that person is able to step back and onto level ground with everyone else, um, additional wisdom can rise to the top. So that's, I guess that's the way I'm coming, coming around to, to de-centering. But so what I want to say is I spent too many years in the midst of an adventure in missing the point. I couldn't see how my exercise of power was centering my voice in worship um, to the exclusion of others. Now, I got, I, I gotta say, I have been the blessed recipient of have some, having some angels come my way. Um, and so I'd love to, to tell about a, a few of them. Please do. These are, these are hints or nudges or kicks, whatever the Holy Spirit does to get our attention. The first hint came towards the beginning of a 10-year ministry at a church in Dallas, a very uh, intellectual, heady congregation. And um, I started getting comments like, it's just so boring. Why do we always have to do the same prayer? Can't we be more creative? Don't we need more variety? And by the way, you mispronounce this word. And I just, <laughs> I, I just found myself feeling very frustrated, and and I didn't understand what was going on. And then, then I got this nudge from the Holy Spirit that said, John, isn't it possible? The, the and I, I am dead serious in saying it was a nudge from the Spirit. Um, I because I was having such a hard time understanding what was going on. It's like the Spirit said to me, is it possible that they're complaining because they feel so distant from the liturgy? Is it possible that they think it belongs to you mm. and they hunger for it to belong to them? It is the work of the people, after all. That's what the word means. Right, right. Um, the second hint happened at a Roman Catholic retreat center to which I went in the 90s, observing the priest's conduct of the Eucharist. He'd spent 40 years on the, in this outpost at the edge of the Chihuahuan Desert in South Texas, devoted to prayer, saying Mass at seven every morning. And his conduct of the Mass, was it was amazing, Derek. Um, he did it as identically as you could imagine day after day, um, where he uh, fixed his gaze when he did the, the fraction, mm -hmm. um, how he said uh, words, how he looked at us, 
when he served the host. And on my first trip, and I, I realized I was in an emotional mess, so that's part of it. <laughs> um, on the first trip, I found myself saying, is there nothing new for this guy day to day? Where's the life in this? But over time, I came to realize that I was witnessing the most earnest attempt I had ever seen of someone trying to decenter his personality uh, from his contact of the Eucharist so that what we could see was not him, but Christ. And it took me a while to see that too, um, because I had to come to realize I, I, being raised in this performance culture mm. and, and being raised in the expectation that the pastor is the one who's supposed to inject energy into the room. And, and uh, so, okay, so I'm having these two things working on me. Um, do the people think the liturgy belongs to me? And what does it mean for this guy who, who does this amazing job of trying to get himself out of the way? Mm. Well, so there were the two um, hints. Then there was the spiritual swift kick up the side of the head that I got. <laughs> this was a Nash Wednesday, two years into my tenure ministry. And, and um, three of us, my, my associate, our, our music director and myself, uh, had a wonderful time planning an Ash Wednesday liturgy. We thought we felt the words were well crafted, the music was well chosen, the artwork was good, and so we got into the service. Everything seemed to be going well. And when my associate Linda, who you will see was one of the angels of my life, when we when we turned to go to the table to get the vessels that the ashes were in, she turned to me and whispered you know, they know how to do this. And I was just, you know, it's like, should I fire you right now or embrace you? Um, and I guess she saw something in my eyes and she said to me, John, you know how to lead them in this. You know how. And so we were in this rectangular shoebox kind of sanctuary. And the spirit just gave um, guidance. I, I said to the people, would you get yourself in a circle, however you can pull it off? And it, it was unusual because a very high percentage of the people in worship that night were at a Nash Wednesday service for the first time in their life. They told us that. Hmm. Um, so Linda and I imposed each other. We imposed the person next to us. And then we handed the ash vessels to um, them. And in the next few minutes came this gorgeous chorus of people speaking priestly words and hearing priestly words come out of their mouths and <laughs> doing something for the first time in their lives. Um, and they, they, so they were invited into this, the intimacy of this sacramental moment as first timers. And... <laughs> Well, there came a point um, when I was struck with terror because one of the worshipers that night was a woman who'd been uh, stricken with polio as a teenager, and she rode in a motorized chair and only had the use of two digits on her left hand. And I said, my God, I have excluded her. This is a disaster. Well, the person next to her didn't see it that way. 
And so, uh, so when the, the vessel came to uh, the two of them, uh, th this, this dear 75-year-old woman took the vessel with the ashes, placed it um, such that Carol, the woman in the wheelchair, um, could dip her fingers in the ashes. And then this blessed woman contorted her body and her head such as she could get it close enough for, for Shirley standing next to her. Oh God, Derek, it was, it was unbelievable. So, okay, so after the service, I'm saying, Lord, what happened? I mean, I was happy, but still asking, what, what happened here? And Linda found me a few minutes later and she said, hey, John, I think we need new worship evaluation questions. <laughs> again, I said, I'm sure you're right, but I'm pretty sure you have some in mind. And, and she said, yes, I do. Did anything happen? And what else do the people know how to do <laughs> and that we haven't empowered them to do? So th that's the story of the angel visitation, the angel Linda coming and pointing out to me that I had centered my voice hmm. and that it was time to decenter it. And what it did was it put us on a course, an eight-year course, because um, I had 10 years there, of asking week after week, what do the people know how to do? Um, or to put it in the, the words we're using, um, how can we as clergy decenter um, so that other voices, other actions, other other stuff can can rise. Um, and I mean, I'd love to tell you about a few of those things, but maybe I should stop for now with the story. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure we may come back to to some of those things, but I guess I'm curious what. What is your response to those who say, but that's my job to be the center. It is my job, as you, you said, you know, in the telling, to inject uh, the spirit or and passion or, or whatever. And, and if I don't do that, I'm not doing my job. You know, if, if I'm letting others do that, then, then I've kind of moved away from, from why I'm there. Yeah, yeah, that's a legitimate thing for people to ask. You know, uh, the best way I can answer it is to say um, what had happened at that Ash Wednesday extended into our Eucharistic practice and how people participated in the Eucharistic prayer. And I did get nervous at one point because what, what happened in essence was I would say to the people, um, the church has set people aside over time, over history in order that the rituals of the church might be handed on in such a way that their essence uh, and their propriety is maintained. Mm. But the prayer was always and ever meant for the people of God. So the Book of Worship tells me, this is, I'm, I'm saying that, I said this to people. So the Book of Worship says an elder shall preside. Mm. But I just don't believe that presiding means you have to say every word. Presiding means that I set the table properly, um, that I context what's going on, um, that we have some conversation about how we're doing this. So 
I guess that's my way of saying that um, I, I understand people saying that's my job, but I think the job is to set the table. Mm -hmm. um, the job is to be attentive um, to the power that's generated when people view the liturgy as their own rather than as the property of the priest. So, so where does it begin in the mind and the heart of the appointed pastor, at least appointed in our tradition or called in other traditions? You know, what, what kind of mind shift, you know, hopefully we don't all need a kick in the head like, like <laughs> you described you got, um, although it happens regularly, but, but what, what do I need to begin thinking about in order to consider making this shift other than just abandoning my role, you know, it, if, if I'm moving, for example, as you were just saying, if I'm moving to thinking about to thinking about presiding being how I set the table and not how I speak the words, you know, where does that begin? Where, what am I aiming toward, I guess, is, is part of what I'm trying to think about. Well, you know, I, I, I anticipated you would ask this, and I'm so glad you did, because it's key. It's, I mean, it's, it is. Um, so I said, where? where am I on this? Where did it come from? Where do I find myself in scripture? And somehow I came to Philippians 2, have this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, that equality with God is not something to be grasped, so that the model of Jesus is the self-emptying model, um, or, to, or to put it another way, when Jesus says, to the people he says it to, your, your faith has made you well. That's the ultimate act of decentering. Jesus mm. saying to them, don't you realize what you just did? Hmm. What, what power, what courage you have? Um, so much of Jesus' work at seem to be restoring agency to people, reminding them, as the Sermon on the Mount says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light mm -hmm. of the world. And so that's, um, that's where uh, I center myself in Scripture. Now, um, to the one who says, but, but if I don't do this, then, you know, what's my job? I, I want to urge pastors to pay attention to um, if, if in fact this happens with them, to their own voice saying, I never get to worship. Mm. And I've certainly heard a lot of pastoral voices say that, I never get to worship. But I wonder, um, out loud here, <laughs> I wonder if we decenter our voices, we'll receive the blessing of hearing more of the raw and unedited experiences of the people of God who are, who are sitting in the same room with us. Um, and the more we take seriously that liturgical power is not a zero-sum game, the more we are likely um, to hear the work of the Spirit in those who surround us. And then we can worship, and then it's not so much about uh, um, how do I perform correctly and how do I get enough affirmation to go on to the next Sunday. Um, it, it also reminds me of the beautiful way in which um, primarily African-American preachers 
will say, uh, I know my own preaching professor and mentor, Zan Holmes, would say to his congregation, I'm going to be addressing this, but if you'll only help me, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then some other things might happen. And um, <laughs> I think that one of the most courageous things that we can do as worship leaders is to follow that extraordinary uh, model of the Black church uh, of, uh, in whatever way is appropriate in one's context, um, to say to the people, if you'll only help me, guess what could happen? Right. Well, and in fact, that's as the preaching guy, you know, it's in, in the preaching where this question, I think, needs to come up. How do we share power in, in preaching? To, to try and get my white congregations of many, the, most of the churches that I served in my ministry to be as verbally connected as an African-American congregation um, doesn't work. You know, it feels artificial. It isn't part of our tradition. Now, maybe over time, we could train more vocal kinds of responses. But, but how do you envision the preaching piece? I, I guess I'm seeing communion, the sacrament, uh, imposition of ashes. I see those as a more interactive, everybody involved. But when it comes to the preaching moment, what, how do you envision that in terms of not centering my voice as the preacher, but allowing others? Yeah, thanks for that question, too. Um, well, in the same way that people could view the Eucharistic prayer as belonging to me, they could view the sermon as belonging to me. Mm -hmm. And so one of the really concrete things that can happen is to make certain that there are, there are some people um, who you actively invite uh, into the preaching life in whatever way seems most appropriate, um, both to your work style and your context. For, for in, in that um, parish I've been describing, I something told me, see all of this, I had to figure out, I'm, I'm unfortunately slow. I, I realized preaching is going to be really lonely here if they think my preaching is as boring as they think the Eucharistic prayer is boring. True. And so what am I going to do? And I started a, a 6.30 a.m. Wednesday Bible study, prayer, a prayer gathering um, in Lent of my first full year and realized that the people were willing to stay to discuss the passage I had chosen for the following week's sermon. Mm -hmm. And for, um, for the next nine years, a core group of uh, eight to 10 came every Wednesday morning for nine years. Mm -hmm. And so I had, on any given Sunday, six or seven of those faces to look at mm -hmm. in the congregation. Um, and that may not seem like a lot, but it felt huge to me. Mm -hmm. um, it was, and occasionally I would say out loud, um, I'm sharing this insight that I got from Patty uh, mm -hmm. on Wednesday morning. And so the people were realizing that I was asking for input. And, and so just trying to, trying to model that I wanted to hear from people that I that I cared about what they thought. And um, then I tried to use some humor uh, on the whole question of congregational response. I mean, vocal 
uh, response. And so I'd say, I'd say something like, this was early on, I'd say, are you with me? And if it was quiet, I'd say, this is where you say yes or no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I just honestly tried to use some humor to get there. And, um, and then I began to preface my sermons by saying, if the act of preaching is one way, then it is truly terrifying. Uh, and I don't want this preaching experience to be one way. And so if you'll affirm me and join me in this, would you say amen? And for about, see, I came onto these things <laughs> one at a mm -hmm. time. So for about seven years, that's that's the way I began my sermon. Okay. So that that's part of, I guess, what I was describing as training a different kind of response. Yeah. Uh, but I was also intrigued by uh, the Bible study experience, and and you're actually bringing other opinions, other voices with you. You're speaking, you're sharing what they shared with you. You're learning from that, which is also a way we have of including voices that may not even be present in the congregation. I mean, one of the things we have to pay attention to is how how homogenous many of our congregations are, and we never hear from folks of another race or another culture or, or and, and so how do we bring those voices in? Well, part of it is by the study we do as preachers, uh, but also other members, other conversations that we may be a part of elsewhere, you know, to, we bring those in. So, so part of it, I, what I'm hearing from you, John, is that part of it is being open to other thoughts than just mine, whatever's been filtered through my own understanding, uh, but, but maybe coming from somewhere else too. Yeah. And, um, there was another amazing role that the that the Wednesday morning group played. Um, I I'm as conflict averse as the next. This was a congregation that expected their pastor to speak boldly and prophetically, and it just um, it just stinks to have a prophet's voice in a pleaser's body. I mean, it, it stinks. Yeah, yeah. and. So one of the things that they did when I would waver or equivocate on Wednesday morning about whether, whether I could say something, they would say, John, you know you have to do that. Hmm. Um, and, and occasionally, if I didn't, then the following Wednesday, they would call me on it. Um, and they would say, I... What what kept you from doing that? Right. So um, anyway, they were a treasure to me. Yeah, an accountability group in a way. Yeah, a prophetic okay. accountability group. No kidding. Well, which which reminds me, I, I had a similar uh, study group um, talking about the text we were going to preach, and and I remember one time we were talking about the place, the national religion issue, and the place of the flag in the sanctuary, and I. You know, and in that smaller group, I talked about how we really oughtn't have one there, and and but was never brave enough to move it myself. They went and they moved it. Oh, that group did. You know? uh -huh. And so then when when I got challenged on that um, by those who didn't want it moved, I could have said, "Well, they did. I didn't do it. I, you know, I didn't tell them to do it. I just said here." The, but no, then I was able to rise up and own it because I had this group who who did the action. <laughs> Uh, yes. But also was pushing me in the same way that you're describing there. So yes, so yes. just bringing others into the conversation 
as we prepare, as we listen, as we're listening to the text and listening to the context and, and, and preparing the sermon, I think is one way to do that. Um, but, but I think there's more involved, and, and we're beginning in homiletic circles to talk about the, the interactive kind of sermon, and, and there are those who are wondering if the monological model is disappearing and all of that, and yet there are some who are afraid of that, afraid of allowing other people's voices to be heard or other people to stand in the chancel. You know, that's, that's one of the things I wanted to be sure and bring up when, when uh, I was preparing to talk with you about this, and that is what I've called the performance anxiety issue. You know, will it be good enough if I just let anybody stand up and speak or stand up and share? Or will, will we lose control? Will, you know, the order be destroyed? All those kinds of things that go through people's minds when they begin to think about sharing power, sharing voice uh, in that space. How, how do you respond to that performance anxiety issue? What I want to do is undergird the reality that we are not just some random assortment of individuals who happened to get in our cars and show up on that Sunday. Um, we've got to say, uh, as leaders, we've got to say that Sunday after Sunday, we are spirit gathered. Um, mm. We are spirit gathered. It's not that the preacher's going to do a show and have an audience. It's that the spirit is summoning uh, a group together uh, for common purpose. The common link is that we're all re recipients of the blessing of the, of the Spirit who entered the sanctuary before we arrived mm. to prepare it for us. Uh, and, and in essence, that all of us can't wait to see what the Spirit will do. I, I, I realized people said, what was your proudest accomplishment of that 10-year ministry? I said, well, I really tried hard to acquaint the people with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so here's one of the ways that, um, again, this whole matter of decentering, uh, there was a liturgical practice, if you want to call it that. Um, I would stand up and greet the people and be, be as tidy with parish announcements as I could. And then I would say, surely we know that the Holy Spirit has preceded us in the room today and made it ready for our gathering. But who will offer prayer to urge the spirit to remain? Um, and then I would sit down. Hmm. Um, and I got to tell you, this is another one of those things where you just have to joyfully laugh and remember. We started the practice on the first Sunday of Advent. And it would be fair to say, when I sat down, we waited a while. You know, you know, in a congregation of white people waiting six seconds seems an eternity, but it was um, it was a long time. I mean, it was more like 20 or 30 seconds. Finally, someone started to hum, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. And it was really quite amazing. I mean, it was just a, just a really powerful moment. So one of the blessed matriarchs of the church came out to me afterwards. And she said, well, I knew Advent was about waiting. <laughs> I'm not sure I I'm not sure I ever saw it as waiting of this sort. <laughs> yeah. So. But uh, 
I guess there's risk involved in what you're suggesting and what you're asking us to think about. There is. And, um, but, oh my, did it, I can only testify personally that, that the risk had a commensurate reward. Mm. Um, I, I would want to add on that whole question of performance anxiety that I, I initially found it difficult to share with people how nerve wracking and stressful worship leadership and preaching was for me, still is. And so, so I would ask them to pray for me. And it was usually met with a kind of, well, why would you need that? <laughs> you're, you're the one who prays. I mean, you're, you're in charge of that. And I'd say, no, no, this is, I really have to insist this is a group effort. And, and I really, really need you to do that. Um, so. Well, tell me, what was the knock-on effect in the church as a whole? through this effort in decentering the vo your voice in worship? Did you, did you see it leak into other areas of the church quickly, easily, or, or, or what was your experience with that? Well, that's a really great question. And I, I'd have to honestly admit that I think we had the most um, effective decentering of power in the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. um, some of that was that I just hadn't, made the connection. Uh, I hadn't, I knew what I was experiencing, but I wasn't that good at naming what it is. I guess one of the gifts of being 67 is that now I'm coming to vocabulary <laughs> for, for what happened 30 years mm. ago. Um, there, there were a few things, decidedly. Um, I, I realized, for example, that it was probably not just um, a a bad use of my time, but a dishonoring of the leaders of the church to attend every committee meeting. And so I adopted a practice of calling the committee chair the day before, a few days before the meeting and saying, um, I, I'm calling because I fully and deeply trust your leadership of the meeting, but I didn't want to leave you um, feeling adrift in any way. And so is there a way I can help you form the agenda, or is there anything you need from the staff to lead your meeting? And that that was a nice, um, there, there were some real rewards mm -hmm. of that, both for me and for the committee chairs who felt honored. Um, so that was at least one. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some of the others were, were more subtle uh, than you realize as people, people utilize their gifts, you know, as you were saying before, if everyone is gifted, then they they may be using them in worship. They may be using them in other ways. But activating those gifts is important. You know, there is there. Uh, if I could have those ten years back, um, the thing I would most urgently want to do is um, to have a deep, thorough conversation in the congregation about how they actually viewed and treated the people in their own neighborhood. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, to get to the point, whether they honored that there was wisdom outside the walls of the church hmm. that might be deeply beneficial to the way we ordered our ministry and might lead to some truly improbable friendships. Um, that's a term that a good friend in Houston, Matt Russell, gave me, just that this, this sense of 
becoming friends with people you never expected you would be friends with. And the congregation clung to, uh, to an idea of being a regional congregation. And I think in some ways, I didn't have the wisdom to say, okay, some of your people come from the region, but that doesn't mean you, you can automatically ignore the neighborhood. So if I had it to do over, um, mm. uh, I would want to <laughs> decenter the idea that all the wisdom that's necessary to do our ministry is currently resident in the congregation. Hmm. That, that actually sounds like the next podcast, John. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see the connection between, but uh, but that's just a big issue, and and uh, we probably used up our time here today with this. But but I love that idea, that launching pad into into looking outward, decentering. To me, in part, means who am I looking at? Who am I looking to? Uh, as well as listening to, and so that goes beyond the walls of the church. That's that's profound. But let's let let me give you the last word here and and say what encouragement would you offer for a pastor or worship leader who who wants to do this but doesn't know where to begin or how to start? Uh, how how could you help them take that first step? I think that some clergy don't make the connection between pastoral care and evangelism. If you if you simply define evangelism as getting to a deeper walk with anybody. Mm. Um, here's what I mean. Um, when I do stewardship work, I had a mentor that said, when you're working with wealthy individuals, for, for goodness sake, realize that they don't just have money, they have stories. Mm. And so I think that one of the biggest ways that pastors can decenter themselves is by having these um, more informal coffee shop or living room conversations where you might say to someone, I notice that you're incredibly generous, your time, your, your skill, and your money. Who taught you that? Hmm. Or um, I notice you're a born leader, um, that you step into situations with clarity and integrity. Who taught you to be a leader? Um, I notice that you never miss Sunday morning worship. I notice that you're the first person to greet guests. Who taught you uh, hospitality? Mm -hmm. And and so instead of being in their home to be the expert on Jesus, you're just trying to incarnate Jesus by by showing interest in the depth of their humanity and reporting to them what you notice, which which can be a, an extraordinary gift to people. Mm -hmm. That sounds powerful, and 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 I think an effective means of building community and having a sense of togetherness with that. I want to say thank you, uh, Reverend John Thornburg, for coming and sharing with us again, and and we will call you back again, and we'll talk some more about how we how the ripples go in further, uh, go out further from from who and what we are as we seek to decenter power in the chancel. Thank you for your time today and your wisdom, and. We hope we can be the church together. It's a blessing to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And thank you who are listening to this. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope it's been helpful to you. And remember, you can always find more information at our website, umcdiscipleship.org. Until next time, we'll be praying for and with you and your congregation. 
May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.